Hey everyone and welcome to the Sunny Go One Piece podcast. On this episode we're going to be diving into episodes 287 through 289 which will cover manga chapters 402 through 406 and this is going to be a super episode as we get to talk about all the duels between the CP9 and the Straw Hats as we get to see Frankie's first full-on battle. First, a little synopsis. The Straw Hats are in the midst of taking on the CP9 to retrieve the keys from them to free Robin. However, they're all struggling in various ways due to a bunch of mismatched matchups and some clumsiness from Zoro and Soga King. So it's now up to Chopper, who has to run around to see if he can retrieve the key to unlock them while Frankie, Sanji, and Nami take on their respective opponents. Alright, on to the differences. So there are just a couple of differences, more so just to pad out the time to fill in the already meager amount of content they give you in these episodes now. But the first one is that scene with Spandem, Luchi, and Robin as they're walking down the hall after realizing that Luffy has broken through the first gate. In the anime, that scene is a little bit longer to the point where uh, it actually includes Spandem sort of violently slapping Robin. Now, he does eventually do this in the manga as well, but it's not till much, much later. There's also an extra scene in the anime where we actually see Nami arrive at Khalifa's room and we see her entering it. Now, in the manga, we don't actually see this scene. And the next time we do see Nami, she has already entered the room. Now, there's also a couple scene shufflings with the Zoro and Sogeking as well as the Fukuro and Frankie fight. So in the manga, we actually get to see Fukuro and Frankie, their fight, go all the way through without interruption. And then you get to see what happens with Zoro and Sogeking. But in the anime, for some reason, they sort of sandwich in the Zoro and Sogeking stuff so that the episode could end on that epic cliffhanger with Frankie using the finishing blow on Fukuro. So I think that was more just done to change up the pacing and to make it so that the end of the episode it climaxes with the finishing blow that Frankie puts on Fukuro which I guess doesn't really matter but at the same time it's like you build up the fight so much and then you just cut away to it It, it's a little frustrating um, but I do understand why they did that and then finally the last change that I saw was there's the bit with uh, Sogeking trying to sort of pit Kaku and Jabra against each other to buy some time now this is an anime only sort of gag as the manga they actually just discussed the rock paper scissors game to decide whose hands getting chopped off uh, as they're still running away so there's not really much of a pause in the fight where they're just kind of talking and trying to trick each other all right let's get into the episodes and my thoughts so first off a bit of clarification that might have been a little confusing when it comes to how i reference the Tower of Justice. So what I've been referring to as the Tower of Justice, I now realize the English subtitles, especially in the Crunchyroll stream, and in most other English media apparently, it's called the Tower of Law. Now both are technically correct as justice is more of a direct translation. In Japanese it's called the Shiho no To, To meaning tower and Shiho meaning justice or judiciary, which is why it can technically be referred to as both. In my mind, I've always just called it the Tower of Justice, but... I will, for from here on out, I'll try and refer to it as the Tower of Law, since we already have the Gates of Justice, which can get a little confusing. Although, in my opinion, it probably should have really been translated to something like the Judiciary Tower, but that doesn't sound as cool, so <laughs> I understand why they chose the Tower of Law. 
But anyways, yeah, that's how I'll be referring to it from here on out to sort of avoid any confusion. Okay, so with that out of the way, let's get into the episodes themselves. We pick up from last podcast where Kaku has just sliced the Tower of Law in half, and in the haste to protect Sogi King and take cover, Zoro leaps on him, but this inadvertently gets them both handcuffed to each other. And this makes for some potentially really interesting and funny shenanigans, as it's a way to keep Zoro involved in action. But just like classic One Piece, it keeps Zoro's climax for his fight saved till the end. I mean, right off the bat, this makes for some really fun developments as Kaku and Jabra also have sort of this antagonistic rivalry, similar to Zoro and Sanji, where they don't want to share their prey, nor do they want to be caught dead cooperating with each other. What caught me off guard is how they're so committed to this that they're willing to just unlock the the two of them if they had the right key. Sadly, neither of them have the key, which means they're stuck for now, but they have to basically continuously run away from both the the two strongest remaining CP9 agents aside from Luchi. And you'd think this was a very serious situation, but it's played completely for laughs. And Oda even doubles down on this by adding Chopper to the equation. And when he gets there, Chopper thinks they're, they're waving because of how fun they're having or how much fun they're having. And they're, when in fact they're trying to get him to notice that they're handcuffed together, but unable to fight, they need Chopper to run out and bring the number two key back dubbing him their only hope, to which Chopper goes into his normal bashful denial (laughs) of praise dance in the heat of a desperate chase, which is just... I mean, these few episodes are hilarious to me, but yeah, I think this is just sort of a taste of where it goes. Now, during all this commotion, Luffy has somehow made it to the other side of the Tower of Law, but is unable to proceed further due to some absurd whirlpools in the water. And... Kind of reminiscent of his initial voyage in the beginning of the series, he tries to navigate his way across in a tiny rowboat, which of course promptly gets swallowed up and Luffy begins to drown. But this is probably my favorite Luffy drowning moment in the entire series, as it's just so damn funny because of how needlessly stupid it is, and the face he makes as he's desperately, like, stupidly trying to keep himself afloat is nothing short of, like, a miracle in those rough waters, like... Which makes this even more funny and hilarious. Now, one thing a lot of people harp on about this scene, or any scene really, where Luffy or a Devil Fruit user is plunged into water, is how inconsistent it is in terms of how the water affects them. Because you have moments where when they fall into the water, they immediately go limp and are unable to do anything. Sort of like in Baratier or in uh, Crocodile's Cage at Rain Dinners. But then you have moments like this, or when Luffy was a kid, shortly before Shanks saves him, he's able to at least kick up water and stay afloat for a little bit. Or even in Arlong Park, even though he's completely submerged underwater, Luffy's still able to hold his hands up to his face to sort of keep his breath a little bit for a while. Now, I mean, the real answer is the water does what it needs to do for the purposes of the story or for comedic timing. Like when Luffy is a kid, we needed to have him stay afloat to see the fear in his face, as well as have Shanks be able to see him and reach him to save his life. While this scene and the rain dinners both are done for comedic purposes, because it's funny as hell to see Luffy panic like this, and inversely, it's funny to see him go limp in the cage playing off of Usopp and Smoker. So to me personally, as long as it doesn't completely break the established rules, I'm, you know... I'm fine with there being some variance for the purposes of the story and storytelling. 
And people who kind of get up in arms about this level of continuity are kind of robbing themselves of an, of an enjoyable scene or a funny joke. Anyways, as a payoff to Chimini and Gombei finding that secret path, they somehow make it to Luffy even quicker, just in time to rescue him. And again, we see a moment where Luffy is saved, reinforcing that theme that Luffy needs help, and he's never afraid to admit that. Not only that, but they show Luffy the secret passage they found so that he doesn't have to sail across this deadly water. But can I just say something about this secret passage for a second here? For a secret government organization that has a super max security base that has this secret passageway, the button to activate this super secret passage is insanely super obvious. Like, I feel like anyone going up these stairs would notice a big yellow button in the middle of the world government symbol just randomly on the wall. Like, like there's none other. It's just this one symbol just on the wall of this staircase. Like, even just out of sheer curiosity, you'd be like, what is this? And so it's not even well hidden, I feel like. Anyways, I I mean, I get that if it wasn't that obvious, then Chimney and Gobei wouldn't, been, wouldn't have been able to find it. But I feel like in real terms, it should have probably been like a breakaway, like brick or something that you could push in. Anyways, I always found that funny. Next, we catch up with a few of the other Straw Hats with Nami first as she's completely overwhelmed with Kumadori and his sort of controllable hair ensnaring her. And obviously, it's not lost on me, the imagery here, but that's all I'm going to mention about that here. Um, she does manage to barely get away with her life. And next up, we see Frankie as he's having a little better luck with Kuro. They're pretty much at a draw, but I love how Frankie's moveset is just one punchline after another. He calls out Frankie boxing like it's a thing, but in reality, it's just him punching, which is just regular boxing. <laughs> But as we saw with Bluno, Frankie is able to break through the CP9's tech guy defense. I think that's one of my favorite things about Frankie is that every time he reveals a new technique, it's some of the most like ass backwards things you'd expect to the point where you can't help but laugh because of how much it catches you off guard. And then lastly, we catch up with Sanji and how he's been faring with Khalifa, which is not great. But they've just been enjoying a tea date this whole time. But Sanji co finally comes to his senses and remembers that he's got a job to do. However, Khalifa knows exactly what she's doing and just seducing and toying with Sanji. It's clear he can beat her easily but won't actually harm her. So she just kind of keeps taking advantage of that by getting in cheap shots. I do like that in these episodes, they do a little bit better job in terms of animation, and I love the force that they give her kicks in the anime, especially the one where she kicks Sanji clear across the room as he's sort of floating over to her in his middling form. But the best one has to be when he's got her dead to rights, but holds his foot up to her face instead of actually hitting her. But instead of just kind of yielding, she just casually kicks him in the balls. <laughs> And Sanji just goes down, and it, it's so ex you knew it was coming, but at the same time, it just catches me off guard at how like swift it is and how randomly it shows up. Anyways, yeah, that that moment always gets me off guard and makes me laugh. Sanji clearly has the upper hand, but because he won't actually harm her, he stands no chance as we get a tease of Khalifa's new devil fruit powers. But before we actually get to see what it is. We cut away to Nami hiding, but again is caught by Kumadori. 
This time, it's Chopper to the rescue with his Cote Rosio to Komodori's face, which is pretty awesome. But before we move on, I have to mention how I've never been able to understand what the hell the Komodori's ability to control his hair was. I mean, he calls it Seimeikikan or Life Return, which apparently allows him to control his bodily functions to like a heightened degree. But it's just one of those th weird things in One Piece that you kind of just like take at face value. <laughs> like, okay, I guess he can control his hair, but there's really no clear explanation as to how he's doing it. Also, on another side note, in his little monologues when he goes into his sort of kabuki mode, he often talks about his deceased mother in the afterlife. But Oda, actually in an SBS Q&A, has stated that she's in fact still alive. Komodori just doesn't know of this fact, which is kind of an interesting tidbit. As the two make a run for it, Nami reveals that she used her second greatest skill. Rather than going for an actual fight, she just straight up stole Komodori's key, which is awesome. Because yeah, that's not a, a, a trick that's often highlighted is Nami's ability to steal things. Unfortunately, it's not the number two key, but even worse, something comes crashing down from the upper floors and it's weird a like weird bulbous version of a bloody Sanji and no doubt due to Khalifa's powers and yet we still don't quite know what it is it's something to do with polishing or kind of encasing somebody in sort of this weird thing however for Nami it's already clear what happened for Sanji to lose a fight it's pretty cool that even in universe the Straw Hats know and understand just how strong each other are and the amount of confidence they have in each other's abilities is super cool to see but with the sight of Khalifa, Nami has her suspicions immediately confirmed and questions Sanji about them. Nami then has her awesome moment picking up where Sanji couldn't and says to leave Khalifa to her. And this moment is so awesome. Nami, who we've seen, won't take a fight unless she has to, especially against a really strong opponent. Even though she lectures Sanji about his extreme chivalry code, that it will eventually kill him, Sanji declares that he doesn't necessarily have a death wish, but he'll never kick a woman even if it kills him, which that level of commitment even impresses both Chopper and Nami to a lesser extent. Then we get a bit of levity as Nami says that she thinks a little more of his chivalry, but Sanji willfully hears it as she loves him a little more. However, the joke isn't really what I want to draw your attention to. It's more Chopper's reaction because if you pay attention, it looks like he's smacking Sanji upside the head for mishearing Nami, but Chopper is in fact actually bonking him on the head with his antlers, which I think is infinitely funnier. There's also clearly something more with Sanji's chivalry that will need to be expanded upon at some point, because it hasn't been explored why it's such a big part of his character like it is. And I'm here to tell you, you will eventually get that sort of exploration into more depth of that, because at this point in the story, I remember thinking... There has to be more to this, otherwise this is just a really extreme and frustrating weakness. And the only way I can kind of stomach it is if there was a reason, and that's, thank God, there was actually a reason. And I know that's a little bit of a spoiler, but I mean, there had to be a reason. One last thing I want to draw your attention to here, because this theme keeps popping up, and will keep popping up for the rest of the arc, is the idea of the Straw Hats covering for each other. They all have their specific strengths and weaknesses, even the strongest of them, but because they have each other, they can pick each other up and cover for each other's shortcomings, which is beautifully represented by placing each straw hat in terrible mismatches to hammer home this theme, 
And there will be more to this as the arc continues, but I just want you to pay attention to this sort of theme as it keeps developing while you watch the rest of the NES lobby because this theme is so strong and it's very important to a lot of the characters and the sort of the development of the Straw Hats in general. I mean, as an immediate example, while Nami stands no chance against Kumadori Chopper takes him on while letting Nami head up to Kalifa, who Sanji couldn't take, and although one concerning thing for Chopper though is that he's already used his two prominent finisher moves, Kokte Roseo and Kokte Cross, and Kumadori is still standing pretty undamaged for the most part except for maybe a bloody face. However, one continuity nitpick I've got to mention is just how long this rumble ball is lasting. His rumble ball is supposed to only last three minutes, and yet even if you took into consideration that anime time is stretched or or shortened depending on what's needed. I mean, there's just no way that this conversation and all that happened in less than like two, three minutes, and he's still able to pull out arm point when he resumes fighting Kumadori. I mean, yeah, it's it's a it's a weird continuity nitpick, but it's just ridiculously long how long this rumble ball has lasted. Getting back to Chimney Gombe, they lead Luffy down the secret passage and reach a massive reinforced door to which they can't get through without a key. But here, as a follow-up to the tease at the end of the Blue No fight, we get confirmation that there is indeed a Gear 3rd, where we see him bite down on his thumb again, just as he did at the end of that fight. But we, what we didn't actually get to see, this time we sort of see? We still don't actually get to see Gear 3rd here. However, what it is, or whatever it is, possesses an immense raw power upgrade as we see him just demolish that massive steel door. But in a weird twist, we immediately see the drawbacks of whatever Gear 3rd is as it turns him into this sort of shrunken down chibi form. Now, we don't know what this means, but it seems like he's only in this chibi state for a short time. And it's pretty hilarious, but it is very curious. I, I remember at the time there was a lot of speculation as to what Gear 3rd actually was. However, I and most people thought that it was something to make him stretch into some sort of like giant form, which would explain why the, the drawback of overextending himself like that would lead to him shrinking down for a du- short duration. It does get the mind racing, and we are so hyped to see him catch up with Luchi. As I remember, we all couldn't wait to see what a battle with both Gear 2nd and Gear 3rd techniques would be like because these new forms dramatically change how combat for Luffy looks like, which was super exciting at the time. Finally, returning to the Fukuro vs. Frankie fight, we see them just trading punches and insults how weak each other's punches are when they're clearly hurting each other. <laughs> the funny part is, is that the insults they're trading about their punches that devolving into just name calling each other pieces of underwear, which is which is pretty funny. During during all this commotion, Chopper and Kumadori's fight comes barreling into the kitchen with Frankie finally able to get some cola. But Chopper then locks Kumadori in the fridge where the cola is being kept, and hilarity ensues as not only Chopper and Frankie have have a sort of funny back and forth as they're still not okay with each other with what happened with Usopp. But the funniest thing is Chopper has to repeatedly open the fridge very quickly and grab the first beverage he can. But they not only have no effect on strengthening Frankie, they actually, depending on the beverage, it affects his personality in different ways. But the best one has to be the vegetable juice and the veggie punch. Yes, I punch. Oh, man. 
that whole sequence of Frankie just playing out different versions of himself based on what drink he puts in his body is pretty funny. And during all this, Chopper is starting to get entertained by the different effects the drinks have on Frankie. Pretty much just like all of us, we're wondering what else, what other drinks would affect him in different ways. But Chopper does manage to eventually get Frankie the cola on his third try. And I, I kind of wish there was more of these. Like, I, I wish in the anime they may have, like, thrown in, like, one or two more with, like, different drinks. But <laughs> we do get the cola. And Frankie's now at full strength and lands a devastating punch on Fukuro. Like, we knew Frankie's punches were strong, but this is beyond what I had ever imagined. Like, I love the music that plays during this sequence, too. It just does so well to get everyone hyped up. However, as strong as the punch was, it wasn't enough to quite knock out Fukuro. So then Frankie starts to bust even more absurd and ridiculous modifications like the Frankie Destroyer Cannon which apparently dislocates his shoulder. And Chopper's reactions, again, are just like, eh, then don't do that. But that's not all that with this gag, as it has a second layer to it, with Kuro mentioning the cannons are useless on him, as they'll never hit him. But Frankie comes back and says that they're gonna, they're still gonna hit him because they're, they're seeking cannonballs, which impressed me and Chopper, but then I just about did a spit take when I first read this in the manga. <laughs> Frankie himself just chases Fukuro around and Chopper just screams, you're the one that does the seeking. <laughs> like the cannonballs aren't the thing that, sneak- that seeks. It's Frankie himself just chasing after him with his shoulders like lunged out. <laughs> it's just so stupid. <laughs> but it's so funny. And every one of Frankie's special moves always starts off sounding insanely cool and impressive, but has somehow found a way to completely subvert my expectations and make my la- make me laugh my ass off. I also love the gag with Fukuro trying to intimidate Frankie with his sort of ability to hide like an owl off screen, and then Chopper just punches him in the gut casually as he's just standing right next to him. I mean, these are literally some of the dumbest jokes, but they always make me laugh out loud every time because of how stupid they are. Fukuro then sends the two of them careening off the tower into the water. And can we just take a moment to recognize how Frankie is literally talking underwater while being concerned about running out of breath? Like, (laughs) I mean, the irony in that. Anyways, Frankie then puts his excellent swimming skills that he taught to Yokozuna to use as he crazily swims up the ocean waterfall, which is impressive in and of itself. After Fukuro keeps him from getting back on land, Frankie uses the kudabu in the water to propel himself in the air. And I'll never get over how ridiculous this move looks as his ass just inflates like 50 times larger than it normally should be. And then manages to ensnare Fukuro and force him to get Bo back to the tower. However, this is where I mentioned in the uh, the differences section, we cut back to Sogeki and Zoro instead of actually finishing this fight. So yeah, before we get to see the conclusion of this duel, we go back to them versus Kaku and Jabra, where they're just, they've just kind of been running around for their lives this whole time, and Sogeking manages to trick the two CP9 agents into sort of fighting each other, but Zoro just kind of blurts out the plan, ruining it. And then Zoro comes up with a plan of his own, and this is just classic Zoro calling back to Little Garden with how extreme and pragmatic Zoro is. <laughs> His plan is to play a game of rock, paper, scissors between the two of them, and whoever loses 
has to get their hand sliced off and immediately take it and run the chopper and get it reattached. This is just insanity. Just like when Zoro was ready to chop both of his feet off at Little Garden to escape Mr. Three's candle service set tower. Of course, Sohuking does not go for this whatsoever as he knows all too well Zoro is completely serious with this scary face that Zoro states he's got another plan. And this one is probably one of the most hilariously epic moments for the two of them. With the epic music, the camera slowly pulls back to reveal that Zoro has decided to use Soul King himself as a sword. <laughs> oh man. Soul King, I, like, Oda and his creativity is just incredible. Like, I can't tell how he comes up with some of these, like, geniusly stupid ideas. It's so funny though. Soul King has basically, he has to perform a plank while holding the Yubashiri, which is also a nice little continuity detail as Zoro can't let Usopp hold Sandai Kitetsu as it's a cursed blade and the Wadoichimonji usually he puts in his mouth when he uses any Santoryu-style moves. And also, I gotta mention that when it's first revealed, the camera pans up and Sogeking even verbally verbally says, Shiking! Which is the sword, you know, the sound the sword makes to sell the moment even more. <laughs> And yeah, I absolutely love this. As a as a meme is born here, with with every so often a debate online will get raised as to which which of Zoro's swords are the best. And invariably, someone always mentions the fact that Soge King's the Soge King sword is the best. And I kind of have to agree; it's definitely one of the funniest and greatest moments when it comes to Zoro's swords. And you know what? Like, I feel like the episode could have ended on this cliffhanger too, instead of wedging this in between the Frankie and Fukuro fight. But anyways, lastly, we finally return to the climax of the Fukuro and Frankie fight as Fukuro begins to spin in midair and we get to see the return of the Frankie centaur to restrain and use his trademark coup de vent to super blast Fukuro like 50 feet into the ground, knocking him out, making him the first CP9 agent to be taken down, obviously aside from Bluno, who's already been taken down a long time ago. And I've got to say, I really like this fight, as unlike the other fights, this one was actually well animated and paced, but really the comedy of this fight is what has always sold it for me. It never fails to get me to burst out laughing multiple times throughout the fight, and I love his little interplay between Chopper, and I, yeah, I really I really like that the fact that they, they do this fight so well in the anime. I mean, in the manga, it's awesome, but I, I like that they actually gave Frankie's first fight duel kind of a little bit more attention than they did you know with Sanji and also with Zoro previously but yeah with that our CP9 our first CP9 agent has been defeated but we've still got two immediate ones that will need to see what happens with their respective cliffhangers with Kamadori breaking out of the fridge to face Chopper again as well as Zoro and Sogi King how that will work out with the Sogi King sword against Jabra and Kaku at the same time but yeah, that's where we'll end it here. If you did enjoy this, send me a like or a comment. And if you want to join me on this journey of rewatching One Piece, please consider subscribing. Check out my Instagram account and Twitter at SunnyGoPodcast if you want updates of when I post new episodes or see some pictures of my manga collection. And as always, I want to take or thank you for taking the time out to listen to my podcast. There'll be a short spoiler section, so stay tuned if you're interested for that. But if not, stay safe out there, and I hope to see you in the next episode. Bye.
Alrighty, so spoiler section, nothing too big here. Obviously the big thing is Sanji's chivalry, which won't actually get revealed till far, far later until we get to Whole Cake Island and we finally learn more of Sanji's past before Baratie, before Zeph. And we see how, yeah, I mean, he he basically endured his mother being sort of abused and seeing seeing all of that. And that had a much greater sort of emphasis on Sanji and why he won't ever harm a woman. Obviously, we'll get into more of that when we do get to Whole Cake Island. But I'm glad that they act, that Oda actually, you know, expanded on that and why he... Why he does that, because, I mean, yeah, it, it's certainly admirable, but it's almost gotten Sanji killed several times because of that fact. And it can be frustrating, for sure. But, I mean, I'm glad that there was a reason for all of that. And speaking of Sanji, and sort of that theme that I mentioned of the Straw Hats covering from each other, and I like that throughout the entire NES Lobby arc, you do see this sort of them picking up each other, and... And it goes back to sort of just how useless Usopp felt. And I love that this sort of theme culminates when Usopp is sort of just down on his luck during the fight. And Sanji is the one that reminds him that they all have their roles to play. They all have their skills. And that is ultimately what leads Usopp to have one of the, if not one, well, I wouldn't say the best, but one of the better moments of this entire arc where he he is the only one that can save Robin from being taken into the gates of justice, as he's all, the only person that can reach her in time with his long-range weapons. And that moment is awesome. Like, I'm not going to talk a little, too much about it here, because I definitely want to deep dive more into that and sort of the themes, as well as Sanji himself, and, and him. why it's incredible that it's him who's the one that's encouraging Usopp, especially considering what he did back on the boat too, in terms of protecting the crew and just sort of his empathy and kindness really showing through in both moments. So I'm not going to really go too far into that here, but I love that this theme sort of keeps popping up and, and it seems like Oda actually intentionally, obviously he intentionally wrote the, the arc to sort of represent that, which is also why he puts all the strong hats in these like weird mismatched, uh, matchups and so they now have to depend on each other and cover for each other and I love that and then lastly this is just kind of a fun little nod but I love how Frankie's first fight is sort of this this sort of the hard-boiled like standoff of toughness I mean it's probably the most famous one is against Senor Pink on Dress Rosa but I, I like that even in this first sort of real duel with the straw hats, he he's basically just taking punches and giving punches, and they're just on a standoff of who's tougher than the other. And it seems like Frankie gets into these sort of fights more often than not. And I like that it it's already starting in his first fight, and that sort of just develops as the story goes on. But yeah, that's pretty much everything I wanted to sort of talk about in this short spoiler section. Anyways, thank you for listening, and I will catch you on the next episode. See ya. <laughs>